so we have a lot to do today to finish the Odyssey. Um, what a good reason to, to skip a quiz, although not a good reason to spend a lot of time talking about whether to skip a quiz or not. Um, let's, everyone's done with it now? Yeah, because you're all ready for the quiz, right? Did you end up liking it? Yes. Uh, more or less than the Iliad? Just out of curious. More, okay. It was more readable, but I think not as good of a story. Not as, okay, yeah. I, I think it wraps everything It certainly wraps everything up. I think it was a better story, but I like Achilles more. Than Odysseus. Yeah. Okay. Um, one place, what about then Hector? I like Hector too, but I like Achilles. Is like, he's a very emotional character, so it's like more engaging. Yeah. Um, and he appears, where we left off last time was Odysseus in the Underworld. And um, it's uh, one of the people that he talks to that we didn't talk about yet is his talk with um, Achilles. And what, just what to notice about that, um, we left off with his um, talking to his mother, remember, and trying to, three times trying to embrace her and failing those three times because she's a ghost. Um, because, um, as we'll hear later and as we heard already in the Iliad, um, she's the image of a dead person, but it's not the Christian idea that the dead person is, um, the, is, is simply transported to another world. Um, no one really knows who the dead are. Yeah? So that's the thing that always confused me about Greek mythology, and although a lot of it was based by the TV show Hercules, so you have, the, you have Hades, which is not hell, it's the world of the dead. You know? mm -hmm. And then you have the illusion fields, Elysian Fields, Elysian yeah. Elysian Fields, and that kind of looks like paradise, but is it like in Hades, and are they having fun, or are they just hanging out there? So, you know, this is going to come up, this comes up in Plato, but where it's explicitly going to come up is in the Aeneid, uh, because Aeneas goes to see his dead father um, in, the, in Virgil's version of the descent to the underworld, the descent to Avernus. It's a really good question. Um, Plato has views on this, uh, the, um, partly based on um, Greek mythology or Greek theology. Uh, Virgil has views on this, partly based on Plato and Homer. And then, of course, Dante will Christianize this um, when he descends into the underworld in the Divine Comedy. So this is an issue that it is confusing and it's going to come up. The very quick answer, and it's something that Christianity um, imported, is that a few people... Um, Virgil will talk about this. A few people actually get to go to the Elysian Fields, which is the basically the equivalent of paradise. Um, although what paradise is is a question also, but the equivalent of heaven. Um, most of them are in the underworld, um, in the unpleasant underworld that you're getting um, described in the Odyssey. And for Plato, um, most people get reincarnated. Um, that is, they go to another world, and, well, it's uh, at least that that's, for Plato, we're not going to be looking at that part of Plato, but um, Plato's um, has a speculative view of the afterlife, um, in which reincarnation and purification is something that, that he thinks about um, at some length. So would you say the Greeks believe in the afterlife? They had there were there were a million different beliefs that they had. Do I think that Plato believed in an afterlife? Well, there's a question about whether Plato did, when he did, what he, how his views changed in the course of um, time. Um, Socrates seems not to have. Um, the um, um, 
uh, Epicureans did not believe in an afterlife. There wasn't a single doctrine. Um, there was a debate about um, whether the soul was immortal or not. Um, and that's a debate that um, it's not only a Christian or a Judeo-Christian debate, it's a debate that goes way back in Greek philosophy, and it obviously goes back to Egyptian philosophy also, um, preparing the soul of the of um, pharaohs and so on for their trip to the land of uh, to the world of the dead um, is is part of that. So there's certainly in Egyptian and Greek and Roman and Christian um, uh, um, theology, there's a very strong current that believes in an afterlife. Um, in Hebrew theology, not so much. Well, um, so no, not back then. What, really? Because you talk about resurrection? Yeah, but you know what? That comes out of, that's, that's a Talmudic response to Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, current Judaism is actually a post-Christian religion. Um, it's not the same thing as what you're getting um, in early Hebrew religion. Um, there's later stuff which implies the possibility of the survival of the soul after death. Um, but not in um, the not in the Pentateuch and not in Except for um, Elijah. sorry Except for Elijah. yeah but that's much later um, once once you get the later prophets yeah but um, um, but the whole the, the whole question of survival after death um, comes later in the Hebrew tradition um, but it's and partly um, it comes later because it's um, uh, repudiation of the Egyptian idea of life after death. Um, that's, anyhow, not for this course, but the question of life after death is going to come up um, in, uh, in a lot of different ways. And it, you're right, it is coming up here, but there isn't a single doctrine. And, if, and it does get very confusing. Yeah? I didn't understand how they got Who's they? Um, well, he follows um, Calypso's, inst uh, Calypso's instruction, uh, excuse me, Circe's instructions. Um, and this is... Uh, Didn't seem that hard to get there. No, not for him. It's much harder in the Aeneid. Um, just l look it up before the quiz. I'm going to quote the story. He's there. And he's he digs a hole. And he kills rams. And he pours... Barney. Yeah, so, but now. <laughs> I remember that. So, like, it was really unclear, like, when he was, like, on his way there and when he actually got there. So, okay. Um, it's at the beginning of book 11. Um, around line. Um, He digs the pit um, and um, does all the sacrificing at line 34. Now, when with sacrifices and prayers, I had so entreated the hordes of the dead. This is page 169 of uh, Lattimore. I had so entreated the hordes of the dead. I took the sheep and cut their throats over the pit, and the dark clouding blood ran in. And the souls of the perished dead gathered to the place up out of Erebos, brides and young unmarried men, and long-suffering elders, virgins, tender, and with sorrows of young hearts upon them, and many fighting men killed in battle, stabbed with brazen spears, still carrying their bloody armor upon them. These came swarming around my pit from every direction with inhuman clamor, and green fear took hold of me. 
Then I encouraged my companions and told them, taking the sheep that were lying by, slaughtered with the pitiless bronze to skin these and burn them and pray to the divinities, to Hades the powerful and to revered Persephone, while I myself, drawing from beside my thigh my sharp sword, crouched there and would not let the strengthless heads of the perished dead draw nearer to the blood until I questioned Tiresias. So if you were doing this as a movie, you would have them get into the pit and the pit would get darker and then it would just sort of open out as the cavernous world of the dead. Um, so it's, it's a vision, it's, it's teleportation, it's um, inception, it's a, it's a um, he's actually flying in a plane, but he's taken the various drugs that have put him to sleep, it's the matrix, it's, you know, <laughs> however you want to do it, but the point is it's a transition into the world of the dead. Actually, I think it's a, it's a good question because I wasn't going to talk about this, but if you go to um, the beginning of book 24... Um, that's the other scene that's set in Hades. And in that scene, um, what happens is the suitors are all being herded towards Hades by Hermes. It's um, to yes, it is. <laughs> um, so Hermes is, it, it, I mean, so Hermes is herding them to the, to the world of Hades. Um, and at line 15 of book 24, um, or line 14, uh, eh, this is the start of line 11. They went along and passed the ocean stream and the white rock and passed the gates of Helios the sun and the country of dreams and presently arrived in the meadow of Asphodel, this, which, which is um, um, the flower of the dead, this is the dwelling place of souls, images of dead men. Um, so the question there, it's that same word image, which was used of Patroclus in the Iliad, that uh, he says, I am the image of Patroclus. And the question is, what does it mean um, for the images of the dead to speak to each other? Um, you know, a place that might actually be a really interesting gloss on this, if you've read it, is William Gibson's novel Neuromancer. Um, where the dead are, some dead people are preserved as artificial intelligences, um, and the living talk to them. Um, Case, who's the hero of Neuromancer. Um, do people know about this? It's the, it's the, um, uh, the founder of all cyberpunk novels. Um, without, it's, it's basically what The Matrix is ripping off and what, um, well, it's a little bit ripping off Blade Runner, but... Uh, ripping off. It's an homage to Blade Runner. Um, but The Matrix and um, all the, and Inception and all those stories which are about being in unreal worlds but thinking that they're real, um, especially if they're done cybernetically. Neuromancer was, was the first and Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson was the second. <laughs> um, but, but Neuromancer is a lot like, so if you've read Snow Crash, Neuromancer is a lot like that, but more so and better even. Um, and not as funny. Um, so, but in Neuromancer, I can't believe we've gone to this, but okay. In Neuromancer, no, it's a, like everything else, it's a retelling of Homer. Um, like everything that ever existed, it's a retelling of Homer. Has anyone read Neuromancer? You should, you read really Snow should, Crash. it's great. Yeah, so Snow Crash is great too. Don't think Neuromancer will be like Snow Crash, because it won't. Um, but it will be like, um, Snow Crash kind of combined with um, Blade Runner. In Neuromancer, 
Um, there are recordings of the personalities, the, the sort of Ray Kurzweil uploading or downloading of um, personalities into silicon. And um, so the hero needs help in the, in the, um, the equivalent of the matrix. And he gets help from a dead person who has um, been converted into an artificial intelligence um, in, this, in the Matrix. Um, and he asks the dead person, um, do you have consciousness or not? That is, as, an, as a bot, as an artificially intelligent being, are you a being with consciousness or not? Um, and uh, this person replies, well, it feels like I exist. Um, but I don't know whether I exist or not. And that's a really interesting um, idea. That is that, that the whole question about artificial intelligence is, um, does something that claims to exist and acts like a human mind in your interactions with it, does it have consciousness or not? And if you ask it, do you have consciousness, It'll, it will say, I think I do. Um, and the question is, so what do you do with the fact that it says, I think I do? Um, of course it'll say that. It's programmed to say that. Um, but does it think it does or not? That's a, that's a hotly debated question in artificial intelligence. Um, in the, its original version, you have the <coughs> souls of the dead, dead speaking in book 24 of the Odyssey. Is your hand up? No. Um, so this is the dwelling place of souls, images of dead men, there they found the soul of Achilleus, the son of Peleus, the soul of Patroclus, and the soul of stately Antilochus, and the soul of Ias, who for beauty and stature was greatest of all the Danaeans, next to the blameless son of Peleus. So these were gathered around Achilleus, and now came to them the soul of Agamemnon, the son of Atreus, sorrowing. And around him were gathered the souls of those others who with him also died and met their face in the house of Odysseus. Now remember that Odysseus has already met Agamemnon when he descends to the underworld. But here's Agamemnon again, and he's now talking to Achilles. And this is the first and only time that we see a conversation between the dead, the dead conversing with each other, not with Odysseus, who's a mediator, but with each other. Um, and um, so, yeah. Does, is it just me, or is Achilles being like really angry at Agamemnon still and trying to like, I guess, hurt his feelings? It's like, uh, oh, you, 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 I mean, I'm feel so bad for you. You didn't have the heroic death of Troy. You know, you got <laughs> killed by uh, your wife and her lover. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good. I think that's right. Um, and there's still there's history between them. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's a really good good insight. Yeah. Why in the first they talked about Sober, but then he wasn't actually there, so I got a little confused. Like that's one of the like things that makes Hades Hades is Sober god guarding, making sure the dead can't leave, and. They were talking about Hercules, how he wrestled him out, and then he wasn't. I got confused. <laughs> I don't think you need to be confused. Um, I think that what Homer is doing is putting in a lot of mythology, and he will refer to mythology and especially to what Heracles has done. Um, but here he's just giving an account of of um, the world of the dead, 
um, and he's not particularly interested in, in fact, he's interested in the opposite of who's guarding the world of the dead and preventing um, the living and the, the dead to come back to life and, and the living to go down to the dead. Um, the idea that it's hard for a living being to go to the realm of the dead and to return is central to Book 11. Um, it's also, Odysseus does it, it's also, and this is what you're referring to, something Heracles has done earlier, has gone to the house of Hades and returned from it, um, which is what makes him a hero. So when Odysseus does it, that also makes him a hero, except that Odysseus doesn't do it by strength. He does it instead by a certain um, uh, aspect of his character that we see throughout, which is an ability to take psychic punishment, um, an ability to be treated like a beggar, or to, he's, he's the opposite of Achilles as a hero. I'll just say it one, one more time. Um, in fact, as people remember, there's, there's um, uh, a point where we discover how he got his name. We talked last time about his name being a pun on nobody. Um, but um, when he's talking to Eurycleia about where he got um, um, the, where he got injured by the boar, um, he, te- he, he says where his name comes from. Do people remember this? What is it? What is it? Um, somebody was like, "Well, I, I suck, and I'm, I, people will see me as nothing, or something like that. So I'm going to name you as nobody." Yeah. So, so Latimer translates it as distasteful, um, because you think of me as distasteful. I will name him um, the distasteful one. Um, in fact, and that's that's a pretty good translation. Um, it's in fact, um, it's it's those. It, it's subject of anger would be a better translation. Um, the person that that um, hated or angered against person is what Odysseus means, um, and the presumption is it's hated or hated by or angered um, or angering or the or or the subject of the anger of the gods is implied. Um, so Odysseus is someone who. Um, the gods are always um, bringing bad luck to, that's what his name means, the person who is star-crossed, um, ill-starred. Um, there's, no, there's no suggestion of star in his name, but a modern English equivalent would be um, ill-starred or jinxed, um, something like that. Yeah. Wasn't it his grandfather? Yes, him? yeah. And then he promises him a gift when he right. starts to become of age, and that's when he goes and gets the star. Right, yes. Good. You ready? For, you are ready yeah, for the I quiz. Three a.m. <laughs> huh? Okay, good. Um, so that's as opposite to Achilles. Odysseus is as opposite a character to Achilles as you can be, um, and it's partly that being someone who isn't um, being glorified by the gods is okay with him. <coughs> for him, the idea of being the object of admiration and glory even at his death, that's that is what Achilles chooses, it's not what Odysseus chooses. Yeah. Doesn't Athena kind of glorify him all the time? Yeah, she does. But but the fact that she does doesn't mean that that's what he wants. Okay. In other words, it's not 
what motivates Achilles and what the entire Iliad is about <clears throat> is Achilles thinking that he's been dissed. If you diss Odysseus, mm. how about Odist one? That's what that's what his name actually means, Odist one. Um, so if you if you if you disrespect Odysseus, um, that's actually okay with him. It gives him an advantage. He likes being underestimated. Um, Achilles certainly the one thing he doesn't want to be is underestimated. Um, he wants his glory always to be known. He wants people to be scared of him because he's scary. Um, he doesn't want people not to be scared of him because that gives him an, an advantage. Um, Whereas Odysseus, being underestimated, is Odysseus's stock in trade. Um, he never boasts, or almost never boasts. When he does boast, he gets into trouble. Um, Achilles, you could say, is... So most characters boast, or most characters who are um, attempting to um, uh, assert their importance will boast. Um, and that's, um, that's simply the, the mode um, in this heroic culture. Um, and what makes boasting okay is if your boasting turns out to be true. That is, if you say, I'm so great, no one can possibly defeat me, um, I am glorious and godlike, and you really are all those things, so that your <coughs> boasting is not exaggeration, um, then you really are great, and Achilles is the prime example of that. Odysseus, boasting for him is way, 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 way down on the list of things that he wants to do. And the few times that he does boast, it's not good. Yeah, Emily. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but okay, but, but still, so look at this. So what happens now is Agamemnon, and I think you're right, Alona, that there is, there is a relic of what's gone on in life. They have this conversation, um, and then we hear about Achilles' funeral again, um, and how the very thing that's promised by the Iliad, that, or that he's promised Patroclus, which is that their bones, that Patroclus has demanded of him and that he agrees to, which is that their bones will be buried together. All of that happens, and he says, um, so look at me. I died there and didn't come home and get killed by my wife. Um, and now there are three possible stories that are being juxtaposed. And we talked about this before, but just notice that the very end of the Odyssey um, is about the juxtaposition of these three stories. Die in battle the way Achilles did, or survive the Trojan War and go home to your wife who's been waiting for you all those years. And... Um, has had um, cowards who haven't gone to the fight um, um, court her sexually, and those the two the bifurcation there is, and she accepts that courtship, and they kill you when you get home, and that's the story of Agamemnon, or she rejects that courtship, and stays faithful to you, and you kill the people who are courting her, and that's the story of Odysseus, and then the suitors come. So in the, in, in, um, in the story of Agamemnon, it's Agamemnon who goes to Hades. Um, in the story of Odysseus, it's the suitors who go to Hades. So the suitors show up um, at line, um, uh, wherever it is, um, 
uh, line 98. Now is the spirits. Um, in my homecoming, the, these are Agamemnon's, the end of Agamemnon's speech. In my homecoming, Zeus devised my, my dismal destruction to be killed by the hands of my cursed wife and Aegisthos. Now, as the spirits were conversing thus with each other, there came approaching them the courier Argeophontes, who is whom? Hermes, yeah, who's, who we found, who's um, in line one of this book, leading down the souls of the suitors killed by Odysseus. These two in wonderment, that is Achilleus and Agamemnon, these two in wonderment went up to them as they saw them, and the soul of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, recognized glorious um, Amphimedon, the dear son of Menelaus, who in his home in Ithaca had once been his guest friend. Um, and then they say, so what's going on here? And Amphidon recaps the story, in case you didn't know. But the point is, look who's dead. Achilles and Agamemnon and the suitors. And look who's alive, Odysseus. And if you go to, um, one reason I wanted to look at this is because the question, how do they get to the underworld that Sahar asked? That's a question that you can also um, ask in reverse um, at line 203. Um, um, Agamemnon has his last speech saying, so that's really great, um, Odysseus um, is amazing and Penelope is amazing. Then Homer says at line 203, um, so these two were conversing each with the other standing in the gates of Hades underneath the earth's secret places. The others went from the city and presently came to the country place of Laertes, handsomely cultivated. So um, that transition from Hades <coughs> to the upper world is managed simply by the word the others. And you don't know which others those were until you find out what they're doing. They're leaving the city and coming to the country place of Laertes. So, in the, so there's the city of the dead that the dead can't leave. They, they can hang out at the gates and watch other people coming into it. And then there are others. And who are these others, these casually mentioned others? Well, they turn out to be Odysseus and Telemachus, um, who are alive and who are, um, and who are in our world, in the world of the living, um, able to leave the city in order to go back to see Odysseus's father. And that contrast, it's almost as though this is the pendant or balance of the earlier moment when Odysseus um, is in Hades. Now Hades is left behind. This is like, again, think of this cinematically. And it's like a cinematic moment where a lot of stuff has happened at a certain place. But now the hero is elsewhere. And we, we cut back to that place. Um, you know, it's like, it's like those cuts in Family Guy or in 30 Rock where someone refers to something, you know, that happened last night. So Liz Lemon talks about um, what her childhood was like. Did you guys see it? Yeah, all right. Well, it's, it's just, it's a two-second scene. Um, and then you get a flashback for a second, but then that flashback is over. So this is a flashback to the world that Odysseus has left behind. And the flashback, as in cinematic technique, that kind of very brief three-second flashback to that other world emphasizes how our hero is no longer part of that, has escaped from it. Um, and I think that's just really nicely done. There's a lot to do, so I'm going to take two more questions and then, yeah. I just thought um, it's like kind of cool that Agamemnon is the one um, who is talking about Penelope. And, I mean, in my version, um, the way it's said is, you know, she unmatched Penelope, did not forget the man she wed. You know, it's like, unlike my wife. Quentin, yes, exactly. Wife. And it really, like, 
then you really clearly see on you know so one side you have Clytemnestra, um, and then on the other side you have Penelope, and then I guess Helen sort of in the middle. Um, yeah. You see that really clearly there. Yes. Great. Yeah. Question about the very, uh, very the end of the book. Um, I don't know if you transition to that or if you want to stay on this. Topic. No, go ahead. Um, well, uh, just the, the the part of the story where um, where Odysseus comes home uh, and how he responds to having other people court his wife. Yeah, um, he's pissed. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I see that. Um, but that's um, a Greek. That's a literal translation of the Greek. <laughs> right. Um, I was when I got to that point in the, in, in the book, I was thinking of two other comparable stories. Um, I was thinking of, of Dumas' uh, Time on Christo, where, mm -hmm. where the husband comes home and the, the wife is already remarried. Yeah. And that's the story of revenge. Yeah. Um, and then you have Enoch Arden in Tennyson, where you have a story where somebody comes home and finds their, their wife has remarried their friend, but he wants to leave them in peace. He doesn't want to be yeah. out there married. Yeah. Um, and I realized in both of those stories, you have plenty of backstory. Yeah. Uh, you know, before, before the husband went to sea, and you can see kind of whole framework, and you don't have that here. Yeah. Um, you just have very, very bloody revenge over guys that, yeah, they're courting his wife. I mean, maybe they're terrible, but I don't know. I, I don't think that there's a good enough argument for them to be... Well, okay, there's, look, there's, there's what you, you're bringing up a really important question, and people thinking about a paper topic think about this, which is um, the violence of Odysseus's response. Um, there's no one, I don't think, who, who doesn't think it goes too far. Um, that is, that there's a huge bloodbath. And it's not only the bloodbath of the suitors, but it's the, it's the killing of the maids that is, that is really um, troubling and what should be troubling. The maids, though? Because they saw the handmaidens and whatever from Penelope came down. So they were still alive, but there was all these women that carried out the bodies. Then they were killed. And then they were killed. Yeah, but there, and they were, afterwards, wasn't there, there was um, the lady that washed the deceased's feet? When yeah, 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 she's... She she, she exults over she exults over the fact mm -hmm. that the maids have been killed. She's she's the most bloodthirsty of them Wasn't all. There are other maids with her that survived. Thirty-eight maids died. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, it seems to me that Odysseus even agreed that it was too far, and that he he didn't feel he he felt like he okay yeah he wanted to kill some of them, but like he he was actually talking. I remember about some of them and saying hmm. These aren't all bad guys. I mean, some of them are fairly nice. Some of them are okay, not great, not horrible. And I and I kind of don't want to kill all of them. But Athena says I have to. He feels compelled. I think. Yeah. I think. I think. I think. Actually, I think that this is the part of Odysseus that's not really rageous like Achilles, being like, "You killed my friend. I'm going to kill you." Uh, I think it's more calculate, calculated because he's been gone for twenty years. He's come back to his country. He's the king. He has to reestablish it because, I mean, right now, like, there's a moment where they're, we're going to give you presents, we're going to do all these things, but this, like, it's obvious that people will say it when they're, like, at the danger of death. When they leave, they can still disrespect them, they can still, you know, uh, basically try to get power because that's what they've been trying to do all along. So there is a sense of um, cleansing. The yeah. Yeah, no, there's, it's a huge and violent um, climax, which may be excessive, but it's also, it, by its very excessiveness, it's what's put behind. And you have to remember that the suitors are trying to kill Telemachus. 
That is, it's not only that they're after Penelope, it's that they have a plan to murder Telemachus. And, they, and, they, and they're going to do it. The suitors are not good guys in any way. Didn't they give up at some point? They were like, uh, it's not going to happen. Let's just go have dinner. But we'll come back and try again tomorrow. The number that shows an omen that no, they argue. Part of what's interesting is the suitors do argue among themselves, and you think, okay, the good suitors will be, will be saved. But they're not, because no one is really good enough except for the herald and the um, singer. And those are the two figures who are saved among all the suitors. Um, but it's, it, I, it, to me, I think it's excessive. Two more comments on this, because there's a lot to say, yeah. Yes. Yes, you do. Yeah. It's yeah. She likes Odysseus, and and she doesn't ba basically she doesn't really like people, um, because she's a goddess and. Um, she enjoys. Um, we're real. No, we're really going to move onward. Um, she she enjoys war. She likes the spectacle of war. We know that from um, the Iliad. Um, but she really does like Odysseus and Telemachus, and um, she wants Odysseus to do well. And slaughtering a bunch of suitors is is part of what makes things do well for him. Um, yeah. Yes. Nice. Uh huh. Well, so there are a huge number of questions that you're raising there, um, but it's mm -hmm. but it's partly um, Athena doesn't so much determine his will the way God does um, to Pharaoh um, as to egg him on. Um, but they're, they're, it's more external in the Odyssey than it is in Exodus. Um, by the way, the ode in Exodus comes from the Odyssey. Does it? Actually, no, it comes from Rhodes. Never mind. Um, the, um, uh, so I think it's not quite the same. And the question, what did the Greeks think about, about the idea of the will, is that's a really hard question also, um, and one that doesn't have an obvious answer. But you're right, there's the interference of divinities who actually don't have that much at stake and who therefore have an aesthetic relation to violence and to pain and to death, um, which is that it's kind of fun for them to see it happening. Um, and um, mortals have to think about that also when they're egged on into war. Okay, one last thing. Yeah, I, I, it's, in, it's kind of this thing that I've seen in this and a lot of other mythologies of what happens when... A powerful being with, or that's kind of, but not entirely alien, decides to start giving you help. The help might not be what you would tend to ex, or yeah. what, what you would tend to think as the best way of doing things. Yeah. But like health, like Irish mythology, when fairies give you help, like they might decide to protect you by turning in, you into a dog yeah. so that your enemies can't find you. Yeah. It's like, and they don't see any problem with this. Yeah. Um, and that's that's also a place where there's where um, the divinities are tricky. That is where this whole idea of being a trickster um, is is something that you get among um, you know divinities or spirits or genies offering you wishes, 
and then um, making them come true. The Delphic Oracle is a trickster also, um, often. And people know, like, the story of Oedipus um, or the story of um, Darius is the Delphic Oracle um, tells the truth about the future, but in a misleading way. And um, that mis the misleadingness of the Oracle is part of um, what is, is the trickster aspect of divinities. And, you know, that anthropologically and folklorically... Um, almost all cultures have trickster spirits or trickster stories about trickster spirits or trickster gods. Um, okay, the, there are plenty of tricksters in um, the Bible as well. Um, all right, go back to Achilles. This is page 180, book 11. I just um, want to point this out to you, and then we'll get to uh, the reunion. Um, but this is book 11. Um, say around line 473, um, Achilles sees um, Odysseus and speaks, full of lamentation, he spoke to me in winged words, son of Laertes and seed of Zeus, resourceful Odysseus, hard man, what made you think of this bigger endeavor? How could you endure to come down here to Hades' place where the senseless dead men dwell, mere imitations of perished mortals. So again, it's the image <coughs> speaking and complaining that it is a mere imitation of itself. Or he, Achilles is saying, I am a mere imitation of myself. So he spoke, and I again said to him in answer, son of Peleus, far the greatest of the Achaeans, Achaeans, Achilleus, I came for the need to consult Tiresias if he might tell me some plan by which I might come back to rocky Ithaca, for I've not been yet, for I've not yet been near Achaean country, nor ever set foot on my land, but always I have troubles. Achilleus, no man before has been more blessed than you, nor ever no, nor ever will be. So um, here's the trickster hero saying, You are the most blessed of all heroes. Before, when you were alive, we Argives honored you as we did the gods, and now in this place you have great authority over the dead. Do not grieve even in death, Achilleus. And then this great, um, much quoted and sublime response on his part. So I spoke, and he in turn said to me in answer, O oh, shining Odysseus, never try to console me for dying. I would rather follow the plow as thrall to another man, one with no land allotted him and not much to live on, than be a king over all the perished dead. Um, so he would rather be a, a living slave than um, the king of the dead. Um, and that's a huge surprise. That is, it turns out, although he's predicted this already in the Iliad when he explains why he's not going to fight, um, to Odysseus and the other ambassadors, he says, why should I fight? Death is death, and if you die in battle... Um, so what? It's just, you're just as dead and um, in no better position um, than if you die in obscurity. Um, why should I go out to meet death? So that's um, the sort of, this is the dark side of Achilles that most people don't know because they admire him for his gloriousness and his unparalleled um, strength and, um, and, and commanding presence. But his dark shadow is always, but you die. And the truth about death is it's all the same. Um, there's no such thing as, um, as having glory, as, 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 as death making, um, being worth it because of glory. 
So this scene is here in the Odyssey. In the Iliad, what the scene is doing is um, essentially contrasting um, one of the things it's doing. Everything is doing many things. Well, one of the things that it's doing is contrasting Achilles with Hector. Um, the character closest to Hector in the Odyssey is Odysseus. That is the character who comes home. One place to see that is if you go to um, page 338, and I just want to look at the reunion scene um, in a decent amount of detail um, between Achilles and, I mean, excuse me, between Odysseus and Penelope. Um, but um, um, go to, uh, this is book um, 23, um, line um, uh, One sixty-three. Um, Odysseus has just been bathed. Um, Athena gilds with grace his head and his shoulders, um, and then, looking like an immortal, he strode forth from the bath and came back. Then and sat on the chair from which he had risen, opposite his wife. And now he spoke to her, saying, "You are so strange." The gods who have their homes on Olympus have made your heart more stubborn than for the rest of womankind. No other woman with spirit as stubborn as yours would keep back as you are doing from her husband, who, after much suffering, came at last in the 20th year back to his own country. Come then, nurse, make me up a bed so that I can use it here, for this woman has a heart of iron within her. So she's not sure that he's who he says he is. If you've seen The Return of Martin Gurr, um, or Summersby, the Richard Gere movie, which is based on the return of Martin Gurr. Um, here's this guy back after 20 years. Is it her husband or not? And his reply to her is this um, phrase, you are so strange what you're doing. Um, hang on to that phrase. She, repeat, she repeats it back to him um, in her response. Circumspect Penelope said to him in answer, you are so strange. I am not being proud, nor indifferent, nor puzzled, beyond need, but I know very well what you looked like when you went in the ship with the sweeping oars from Ithaca, um, and you don't look the same now. It's 20 years later. Um, if you... Um, go to page 342, um, Odysseus has now um, proven whom he is. And Penelope says, okay, now I'm going to tell my story. And Odysseus says to her, an answer at line 264, you are so strange. Um, why do you urge me on? Excuse me, Penelope says, tell your story. You are so strange. Why do you urge me on and tell me to speak of it? So notice that that phrase is used three times. You are so strange. Now, there Lattimore is thinking really hard about how to translate a word in Greek that he didn't think that hard about when he translated the Iliad. Um, probably rightly so, but if you happen to have the Iliad with you, which you probably don't, but in the Iliad, um, in the scene between Hector and Andromache, and I just want to use this partly to show um, the way Odysseus and um, Penelope are a kind of return of the structure of Hector and Andromache. 
Um, remember that Hector has just bathed in before his last leave-taking of Andromache, just as um, Odysseus has just bathed. And it's also important to know that Agamemnon is murdered having, having just bathed upon his return from Troy. Um, the murder of Agamemnon also occurs right after um, he's, he's bathed. Um, he's, he's, um, nets are thrown over him, and then um, Clytemnestra and Aegisthus kill him. Um, so um, this is... Uh, did I really not mark this? Yeah, no, I did. Um, so we looked at this before, but I'll read it to you again. Um, the, uh, she came to him there, that is Andromache comes to Hector, and beside her went an intended carrying the boy in the fold of her bosom, a little child, only a baby, Hector's son, the admired, beautiful as a star shining, whom Hector calls Scamandrios, but all of the others, Astyanax, lord of the city, since Hector alone saved Ilion. Hector smiled in silence as he looked on his son, but she, Andromache, stood close beside him, letting her tears fall, and clung to his hand, and called him by name, and spoke to him. And um, the way um, uh, Lattimer translates here is the same phrase he translates simply with the word dearest. Um, not you are so strange, but dearest. And, um, but it's the same word. And then a little bit later, Hector, um, taking his leave of her, um, strokes her with his hand and called her by name and spoke to her. And again, um, Latimer now translates the same word yet again, poor Andromache, why does your heart sorrow so much for me? The word throughout is daimonin or daimona. Um, that, and what it literally means is um, person who is um, haunted by um, daimons, um, where daimons mean um, spirits who are um, in some way or another um, making you, um, putting you in an odd position. Um, we might colloquially translate it as silly. That is, um, you are so strange. If you can feel silly, is obviously way too colloquial. But if you can, if you can feel like a husband and wife affectionately saying to each other, "Silly, um, you know, what do you do? What silly? Why, why don't you recognize me, silly?" And then she replies, "Silly, when you went off to war, I remember what you looked like." Um, so it's, it's a term of endearment, you are so strange. And it's actually a, a, a term of endearment that is used in two, it's used in a lot of different contexts, but it's used a lot between, um, between married couples as a sign of genuine affection between them. Um, it's, it's like, I see um, the parts of you, I know you well, I see the parts of you that are a little bit um, uh, interesting. Um, and it's also a term that's used for strangers who need hospitality. Um, they will also be called the daimon haunted ones. Um, so here you get a really interesting example um, of the, the um, meeting of antithetical ideas 
Um, this is something that a lot of people in folklore and mythology and also in, in linguistics are really, really interested in. When apparent antonyms turn out to have the same root. So for, to take another example, host and guest um, are the same word in both Latin and Greek. Um, the word host and the word guest, they seem like the opposite ends of a relationship, but they actually um, come from the same root, from the same word. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that's the point, is that um, they're not different from each other. That's exactly right. Um, so in a way, the best translation probably, it's not accurate to the sense of there being a daimon there. And as you will see when you read the Apology and the symposium, the idea of a daimon is an important one. Um, but the best translation that doesn't, <laughs> without getting the idea of the daimon, would be something like strange one. Um, you know, strange woman, how can you not see that it's me? Um, you know, so you can see that as a term of very, very great affection between people. Um, strange one, strange man, don't you, don't you know how much I love you? Um, that makes perfect sense in dialogue. That's the dialogue Homer is doing, but it's also what you would say about a stranger. Um, that is the stranger, the foreigner, um, the person who has come from afar. Um, so that idea that there's a relationship between the spouses, between Hector and Andromache, between um, 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 Odysseus and Penelope, which is too close to simply call it face-to-face -face recognition when two people know who each other are, and where the only other way of describing that relationship is the relationship between um, uh, between the sacred rites due to strangers. Um, the idea that there's something too intense there for the relationship to be a settled one, either because they're too close or because they're too far away. That's what that word and what Homer wants that word to be giving you. That's why he has um, Hector and Andromache use those terms to each other and why he then repeats that mode of address having Odysseus and Penelope use those, use those terms themselves. Um, go back a little bit to um, page 240 of the Odyssey. Um, we, remember the simile we talked about, and then we're going to go back forward to the reunion between um, um, Odysseus and Penelope. But remember the simile that we talked about, um, which I was calling a reverse simile, which is the simile um, of the um, octopus hanging onto the rock and um, how um, bits of the rock um, stay in the octopus's um, um, tentacles and suckers, um, and how this was like how bits of Odysseus's flesh stayed on the rock that he was holding on to, so that, the, that, that you get a, a similar or a comparison, and yet it goes oddly the other way from what you're expecting. It's a mirror image rather than um, an obvious parallel. Um, so here's one that's been set up for, this is book 16, um, at the very beginning. So what's happened is 
Um, Odysseus um, is um, talking to Eumaeus, the swineherd, and um, then they hear footsteps, um, and um, then we get started line 11. His whole word had not been spoken when his beloved son stood in the forecourt. So Odysseus sees Telemachus now for the first time um, in 20 years, in 19 years. His whole world had not, his whole word had not been spoken when his beloved son stood in the forecourt. Amazed, the swineherd started up and the vessels where he'd been busily mixing the bright wine fell from his hand. Um, hang on to those falling vessels. Well, don't hang on to them. Remember them. Um, that is that there's, here's a little um, very typically Homeric gesture, which is that someone forgets what they're doing, but the poem doesn't forget it. The poem watches the vessels fall, even though um, the swineherd um, drops them because he stopped thinking about them because he's amazed by what he sees. He came up to meet his master and kissed his head and kissed too his beautiful shining eyes, and both his hands and the swelling tear fell from him. And then the simile. And as a father with heart full of love welcomes his only and grown son for whose sake he has undergone many hardships when he comes back in the tenth year from a distant country. So, now, and what are you expecting? Yeah, what you're expecting is that, that what Homer is telling you is, and Odysseus saw Telemachus, and he embraced him just like that. But no, the simile suddenly veers. That's how the swineherd embraces Telemachus. So now the noble swineherd, clinging fast to God like Telemachus, kissed him, even as if he had escaped dying and in a burst of weeping, he spoke to him in winged words. So the simile seems to be about how Odysseus will, is and will and should respond to Telemachus. And then, no, it isn't. Odysseus is keeping his, his identity secret. And that moment of reunion is the swineherd and Telemachus. This, uh, this simile is a kind of um, figurative parallel or figurative example of what we've seen a couple of times, which is Odysseus listening to his own story when Demodocus sings the story of the fall of Troy. And Odysseus is an audience to the very story that he, in fact, was a participant in. Um, that shifting from participation to being an audience member. We've seen it on the level of plot. We'll see it again on the level of plot when Telemachus weeps. Um, Odysseus himself will tell stories about Odysseus as though he himself is not Odysseus. Um, he's always off to the side as a kind of audience member or even um, narrator of his own story. And here the simile does that to him. He watches the reunion that, in fact, should be what he's doing. Instead, he's just watching it. And the connection between him and that reunion is done through the simile. Yeah? And then later on, when Thomas and Odysseus do reunite, it's not like this. I mean, in my edition, it says, um, you know, the son and father let their sad tears fall. It's not as yes. joyful. Because, I mean, it really is sad. It's, you know, it, it is you know, a good thing that they're reuniting, but like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know his son. He left him in the baby. Yeah. He's 20 years old, and that's actually really, really sad. Yes. Yeah. 
It is. And, um, and they, they also take pleasure in their sadness. Um, but, it's, it, but it is sad. And in a sense, the pleasure they take in their sadness is like literary pleasure. The great mystery of literature, um, and this is a mystery that Homer um, begins asking and that Homer knows, is why do sad stories make us happy? Um, that is, why does being sad, why does being made sad by a story make us happy? Um, and there's a way in which that's the deep, <coughs> deep question of the Odyssey, that it's a story which is certainly a sad story because it's a story about choosing life where choosing life means choosing mortality, choosing to die. Um, so it's a story that even its happy ending is also a sad ending. Um, and yet, the sad ending, um, the sadness of the happy ending is itself something that makes us happy. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Um, I thought you said that Athena never appears as a woman, but right after... No, no, she does. I was wrong. Yeah. I, like, I was confused about the significance of it, because she doesn't until basically here, where she starts showing up to Odysseus as this beautiful, tall woman that... She actually does with the Phaeacians also. She leads Odysseus into the city, um, disguised as one of Nausicaa's maids. Um, so I, I, I was just wrong. Um, there's a shift there. But, but I think there's, there is some, um, uh, one of the things that happens in the Odyssey is that the female characters have much more prominence than they do in the Iliad. And one way of marking that is to see Athena um, uh, being willing, who's, who is among the most prominent of goddesses, being willing um, to see women as prominent figures, too. Yeah? Well, I was going to say, like, I don't know if prominent isn't necessarily positive. No, I mean, in a pot. Well, it, with Eurycleia, it's hard to say, um, but in a positive way. I mean, Eurycleia is a great character, but, but she's also the moment of her bloodthirsty whooping over the death of the suitors is an odd one. Um, and, and, uh, Again, you know, there, there are um, interesting biblical parallels to that. Um, but, it, but, they, but they're meant to be, I think, I think moments like that are meant to at least be striking. Yeah, Emily. Yeah. But she, I think she actually takes more pleasure in, viol in the violence itself than they do. Um, it's not the outcome. Everyone wants the suitors um, punished and destroyed. And we're all looking forward to that. And we've been looking forward to it for, for um, six books. Um, but it's the, but she, takes, she takes absolute pleasure in, in the violence itself um, rather than in in the fact that they're shown up. Um, yeah? Before you mentioned how, like, the Greek simile had this idea of simile. Uh, when of simile? Well, you see, symbolism, like, uh, huh? yeah, so I'm not saying symbolism, like, when the men were turning pigs, which is like, oh, okay, they're turning pigs, like, the cigars and cigars. So, like, maybe, couldn't just, like, if that was true, then, then, like, she can't be a symbol for anyone, and therefore, maybe she was just I 
I think that there's, I think we'll have to talk a lot about symbolism and allegory when we get to Dante. Um, but what I would say is that there are lots of ways of connecting characters to each other. Um, symbolic is one of many. And, um, it, and if you're very quick to see things as symbolism, um, you miss all, you're, you're liable to miss all the other connections. And because Homer wasn't thinking symbolically, in that sense, it's probably a mistake to go that way. We really have to, we only have 10 minutes, so we really have to rush through. Go back to um, page 338, um, and um, this is book 23 um, around... um, uh, started around line 123. Um, or the, a little earlier. So what's happened here is we have finally um, a situation in which the father, the mother, and the child are all together. And I think one thing that I want to say is that the situation is really, really striking if you see it, and, and familiar, strikingly familiar, um, if you see it from Telemachus's point of view. That is, so here's the child, and now his parents are finally together, and um, that should be happiness. Um, it should be a recovery of something that's been lost for a long time. But what he sees is tension between them. And so the child's experience of tension between his or her parents um, is what Homer is describing here. This is the first time he describes it. The experience of the child in a fraught situation where he doesn't understand why his parents are not just um, a parental unit, to use the um, psychobabble term, which has become very popular. Um, why are they not a unit? What's going on? Where is this tension? Um, and then Odysseus speaks to Telemachus in winged words at line 113. Telemachus, leave your mother to examine me in the palace as she will, and presently she will understand better. So let your mother and me talk. Um, your mother and I have to have a conversation. We've all been in that position where we want to be um, the, the, the mediator, um, and it's very troubling to be kicked out of the room when they're going to talk. Um, the whole point is we don't want this to be a position or a situation where we're kicked out. Um, so Telemachus says, um, okay, look to yourself. Um, and then Odysseus, um, makes, um, they make some plans. Um, and then, it, and then um, Odysseus is bathed. This starts at line 153. Um, and this is what we already looked at. He's gilded with grace. Um, and he, then he says to Penelope, you are so strange. The gods who have their home on Olympus have made your heart more stubborn than for the rest of womankind. And then circumspect Penelope said to him in answer. So her, one of her great epithets is circumspect. Circumspect Penelope said to him in answer, you are so strange. I am not being proud nor indifferent nor puzzled beyond need, but I know very well what you looked like when you went in the ship with the sweeping oars from Ithaca. Come then, Eurycleia, and make up a firm bed for him outside the well-fashioned chamber, that very bed he himself built. Put the firm bed here outside for him, 
and cover it over with fleeces and blankets and with shining coverlets. Um, Homer says, so she spoke to her husband, trying him out. So how is she trying him out? Yeah? Well, it's because the, the, um, the bed is constructed out of a tree that's still rooted to the ground, and he knows that, and she's testing him to see it. It's really him. Yeah, so, so what does that make her? Nice. Yes. So here, circumspect Penelope becomes the trickster, and she tricks Odysseus. Um, and what she manages to do is to provoke anger in him. Um, so that really wonderfully kind of picks up on the level of plot um, the you are so strange interchange. Um, yeah, Penelope is um, right for Odysseus. They really are um, made for each other because she's a trickster too. We know she's a trickster because of what she did with the weaving. But not only that, but she beats Odysseus at his own game. So she spoke to her husband, trying him out. But Odysseus spoke in anger to his virtuous-minded lady. And now we hear about how could that possibly be? Um, the bed was actually the stump of a tree. Um, and how could it possibly be moved? Um, and if, if some man moved it, that's really bad. And so he now knows this fact that only he, of all people, would know. So at line 205, so he spoke, and her knees and the proud heart within her went slack as she recognized the clear proofs that Odysseus had given. But then she burst into tears and ran straight to him, throwing her arms around the neck of Odysseus and kissed his head, saying, Do not be angry with me, Odysseus, since beyond other men you have the most understanding. The gods granted us misery in jealousy over the thought that we two always together should enjoy our youth and then come to the threshold of old age. So we were miserable because we didn't enjoy our youth all the way to the threshold of old age. You've been gone for those 20 years, but you're back. And so she's really happy. She has this long speech. Um, and um, again, she contrasts herself to Helen um, and then uh, go to line 230. Well, she gives her a little bit of her history. Go to line 227. Um, and there's one serving woman, actor's daughter, whom my father gave me when I came here, who used to guard the doors for us in our well-built chamber so you persuade my heart, though it has been very stubborn. She spoke, and still more roused in him the passion for weeping. So now he weeps again. Here's Penelope, and he weeps, sad and happy at the same time. He wept as he held his lovely wife, whose thoughts were virtuous, and as when the land appears welcome to men who are swimming, after Poseidon has smashed their strong-built ship on the open water, pounding it with the weight of wind and the heavy seas, and only a few escape the gray water landward by swimming with a thick scurf of salt coated upon them, and gladly they set foot on the shore, escaping the evil. So welcome was her husband to her as she looked upon him. So that's probably the most famous simile in the Odyssey. Why? 
because it's about Odysseus. Yeah, because it's a simile that's, again, recapped Odysseus's um, most, most um, synecdocal moment. That is Odysseus, the shipwrecked, trying to get to shore. And it's, in fact, the first way with, that we see him. That's when he's shipwrecked after he leaves Calypso and he gets to the land of the Phaeacians. So now we return to that first depiction of Odysseus, the first narrative account that Homer gives of Odysseus, um, shipwrecked and getting to the land of the Phaeacians and reaching the shore with joy. Now that gets recapped in the simile. Yeah. Yeah, it seems actually kind of redundant. It reminds me of a mo- moment in Shakespeare, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, when somebody asks the, one of the joke characters, what it is, and he's or what the thing, what something is, and he says, "It is a thing, sir, shaped like itself." And a he, crocodile. Yeah. Yeah, and the tears of it are wet. Yep. It, it is of its own color too, and the tears of it are wet. Yeah. So why is this redundant? Um, because they're comparing Odysseus to him, or it's comparing Odysseus to himself. But it's not comparing Odysseus to himself. I think it is. No, it's I not. It's comparing Penelope to Odysseus. Hmm. That's what makes it famous. That's the whole. That's the whole setup of the reverse simile. Look, one, it's it's interesting and I think important, but at least interesting to see that Homer has um, again. It's, it's it's the extraordinary sophistication of this poem and of how it's put together. That that first time that we see this reverse simile, which is the one of the octopus and the bits of rock that are stuck in its tentacles, so are bits of Odysseus's flesh stuck to the rocks. We see that simile in the opening scene of Odysseus, shipwrecked and managing to swim his way to shore, um, barely alive. So Homer is giving us a certain kind of simile teaching us, as any work of literature or narrative or fiction has to do, how to read it, how to understand it. When I say this, I'm saying something that is um, clearly true, although it may seem trivial. You go to a movie, and um, you being a good person who want the full effect of a movie, haven't read the reviews, or you haven't read the back of the DVD, someone told you it's good, and you say, that's all I want to know about it, and you go to it, and what a movie has to tell you in the first few minutes is whether it's science fiction or whether it's um, a slice of, of death realism or whether it's neorealism or whether it's a romantic comedy or whatever. It has to tell you how to understand the scenes that are going to happen. Um, it has to tell you that if it's science fiction, you shouldn't say, my God, why aren't all these people surprised that starships are, are, are docking um, in Federation star bases out in space? Um, that's incredible to me. But if you were looking at a neorealist slice of life where someone was stealing a bicycle and, and um, the question was whether um, the bread was too moldy to eat and poverty was terrible, and then a starship came, you'd say, <laughs> wait a second, what's going on here? Um, so any work of narrative, a fiction, has to tell you the rules by which to understand it. The most sophisticated works of fiction will give you new rules that you haven't seen before. Um, won't say, look, this is science fiction, so now you know you're in a science fiction world. Um, but they'll say, you don't actually know what this is. Um, 
you know, Sixth Sense is a good example of everything. Um, in Sixth Sense, you don't know whether it's a ghost story or a story of someone who's troubled and um, um, has, um, has hallucinations. And you don't find out for a really long time whether it's a story about psychiatry or a story about the supernatural. Um, and part of what's going on is, is that a certain rule is withheld from you, not for a standard way, which is to make you um, scared that you don't know, but um, for a different reason that only pans out in the second half or towards the end of the movie. In the same way, what Homer is doing and does a few times, but doesn't overdo it because he's not anxious about it, is he says, I'm going to give you a new kind of simile. And it's not that important the first time I give it to you. This idea of, um, is it the... Is Odysseus like the rock, or is Odysseus like the octopus? You think he's like um, the octopus, but it turns out that he's actually like the rock. Um, it's not that important. It's just kind of an interesting um, and a little bit surprising <coughs> turn of phrase, which is good. That's what writing is, or surprising turns of phrases. Um, but then he does it again when Eumaeus weeps over Telemachus, how the way Odysseus should be weeping over him. It's, there he is, he's back, that's amazing. And you think, ah, that's a, now I see why he did the octopus simile, um, because there are these similes with surprising mappings onto the thing they're describing. The similes give you surprising comparisons. Um, and now you're really starting to get attuned to this, but it's all to set up the simile that reminds you of the first time you got it the octopus time, Odysseus trying to get to land. It reminds you of the first incident is this last incident where it's um, like, a, like as a man is welcome to men who are swimming after Poseidon has smashed their strong-built ship on the ocean water, pounding it with the weight of wind and the heavy seas. I repeat myself for emphasis, and only a few escape the gray water landward by swimming with a thick scurf of salt coated upon them and gladly they set foot on the shore, escaping the evil. So welcome was her husband to her as she looked upon him. The land appears welcome to a swimmer. Her husband was welcome to her. She is being mapped onto the swimmer. It's not that Odysseus is being compared to himself. It's that Penelope is being compared to Odysseus. Odysseus is the vehicle of the simile and the tenor of the simile is that it's Penelope who is looking at Odysseus the way Odysseus has looked at the land. Um, it's for, what is it? 341. 341. Um, book 11, excuse me, I keep saying book 11 because that's the underworld. Book 23, line, it begins at line 232. 231, 23, 233. 23, 233. Um, yes. So, before, where Odysseus is mad about the bed. Mm-hmm. Yes. It seems fairly unbelievable to me. Why wouldn't he just be like, oh, I see what you're doing. All right, like, you're trying to, like, make sure that I'm the real guy. Like, I, like, no, no